Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Jonathan Lethem. Jonathan's new book, Chronic City, is set in the New York of today, albeit one with beguiling or dystopian twists of its own. An edition of the New York Times that excludes all mention of war. A dark fog that seems perpetually to hang over downtown Manhattan. A mysterious tiger on the loose which causes ever greater destruction and an equally mysterious smell of chocolate wafting over the city and emanating from no one knows where. And one small corner of this cityscape, the rundown part of New York's Upper East Side, is where Chasen Stedman, a former TV actor, and Perkis Tooth, a wall-eyed free-range pop critic, spend their time in what Jonathan has described as a sort of perpetual episode of Seinfeld. Before we got to Chasen Perkis, though, I wanted to know more about Jonathan's own attitude to Manhattan. He is, after all, better known as a Brooklyn author. Well, you know, if you grow up in the outer boroughs, uh, you have the same relationship in a way to Manhattan that the whole world does. It's this distant fantasy place of aspiration and, and projection. It's the image that you receive in other media, and it's a skyline and it's a concept. But you also have this weird possession of it at the same time. It's three subway stops away. You can go there. You can, for the price of a subway token, which was, you know, 50 cents when I was a kid, you could go to Greenwich Village and buy a slice of pizza and walk around, you know, Washington Square. And it was yours, too. And you felt defiantly, obstinately proud of it. You know, New York City is one city, and so Manhattan belongs to me, too. So it was far away and close. And in a way, that doubleness it, it persists in my understanding of the place. I think Manhattan is a place that's both real and unreal. It's made up of concepts. It's a virtual place, and it's very prosaic. It's where people live their lives. It's apartments and neighborhoods and, you know, people plodding along the sidewalk trying to get along. So it's it stays a kind of a, a fantasy place even when you get there. That's maybe its signature. And... Uh, perhaps a lot of British listeners will think of the Upper East Side, where a lot of this book is set, as being the area where you've got the museums and the park and you've got old money. Right. But that that's a sort of imperfect vision of it, as far as this book is concerned. Yes, well, it's all true. And, and more than just the museums and the, and the old money, you know, of course, Park Avenue is where the most expensive apartments in the universe are, absurdly. Apartments that are, are like fortresses of privilege, but also there's Madison Avenue right running through it, which is the very, the name of it is the very symbol of, you know, the American Dream Factory, where you know where the commercial dream is is born, but you only have to go a couple of blocks east of there, past Lexington, to Third and Second Avenues and and beyond that, and you're in actually one of the real backwaters of Manhattan, a very kind of ordinary drab, kind of podunk neighborhood, one that's changed very little, despite how much money has kind of come to roost in New York since, you know, the 70s, when it was at a kind of low point, when I first came to know the city. One of the least changed parts of Manhattan, ironically, is this far east part of the Upper East Side, which has the same drab shops and a lot of people clinging to rent-controlled apartments, and it's not a very expensive place to live, and it doesn't turn over very much and it never becomes fashionable. It's sort of an entrenched place. And I like this, again, this doubleness that the the two things are in such close proximity. Those All those fantasies of power and money running along Madison and Park Avenues and the, the uh, 
and in fact the museums too with the the strange you know kind of um, European ancient quality to a building like the Frick or the Metropolitan and then these very ordinary lives eking themselves out uh, so nearby. I wondered if you could sort of evoke how this book took shape in your mind. What, what were the sort of seeds that right back at the start of it? Because it's a very big, broad canvas, an ambitious book. But what, what were the sort of germs of the idea? I mean, it's very, it's very definite in my mind. I remember how I conceived it. And it was in 2004 as, as we, and I use the word we advisedly, we reelected the Bush and Cheney administration. And it was a, a terrible year for that if nothing else. And as a New Yorker, having lived through 9-11, you know, this is a book suffused in the anxieties, the, the depression, the hangover of 9-11 and what came after. I think I would never have wanted the book to address that event directly, partly because I think it's a very difficult thing for fiction to depict usefully. Anyway, my kind of fiction. But also, I wanted to write about, in a way, the denial of those events as much as I wanted to write about those events themselves. Because I think when they first happened, and I mean really the first days, it was a terrible, tragic experience in New York, but it was also very intimate and very tangible. It was literally a bodily experience. You saw it and you smelled it and you tasted it. And it happened to you and your neighbors and it happened to friends who'd lost friends. And it created a lot of very dark solidarity. It was a very intimate thing to live through. And then, of course, in, in retrospect, within hours, certainly within days, it had begun to be turned into a symbol and it was appropriated for a kind of other purpose that had nothing ultimately to do with New York City. It was a kind of um, useful event. And by the time we re-elected that administration to, in 2004, the sense of solidarity and intimacy and possession in the lives of many people in New York, I think, had evaporated. 9-11 didn't really belong to us anymore. It was turned into a, a, a banner under which distant wars were being waged. And that itself was very, very depressing and bleak. And it seemed to me it became a time of denial and you know, of course, denial and displacement has more to do, has to do with more, I should say, than the 9-11. It has to do with global warming and everything else that is intolerable to think about in daily life. And so I began to think about the intolerability of, of being aware of these distant forces. Things like a climate change, which are both everywhere and nowhere at once. They're, they seem impossibly distant and imaginary, and yet they're supposed to have to do with each of our personal lives quite intimately. And the way a city, the way a community, the way an individual goes on functioning and thinking about day-to-day -day things by pushing these larger questions, these larger clouds, these ominous clouds of the unapproachable truth of what's going on that you can't control the way you push it to, this, to the edge of consciousness. This was my subject to begin with. Well, now, of course, all that sounds really ponderous and, and, and like a very, in a way, a very dreadful subject for a book. But the cure for that ponderousness is also contained in the, the notion itself because how do people carry on? What do they do when they carry on? When you deny the fact that, that 
9-11 happened or you deny the fact that, you know, we've destroyed the Earth's atmosphere or you deny uh, the fact of an unjust war being carried on in your name, what do you do? You gossip, you play, you romance, you live your daily life. And so I thought, in a way, with this backdrop of distant horrors, that what should be in the foreground of the book should be like an episode of Seinfeld, an endless chaotic episode of Seinfeld. Manhattanites living in their solipsistic, giddy way, fascinated with each other, appalled by one another, and gossiping, playing, making love, doing anything but thinking about these larger questions and their own implication in, in these larger questions. So I had this idea then that the book would be kind of a, a sitcom in the foreground with a, you know, a horrible kind of Goya vast Goya canvas of war and and um, and witchery in the background. You often evoke a dark grey cloud which hangs over downtown Manhattan. And I I wrote in my notes sort of quite confidently, dark grey cloud equals nine eleven. But of course as as the book goes on, it, it can betoken many more things than that. And you know, you've just mentioned global warming and yeah. and also I began to think about the sort of toxicity of the financial shenanigans that were going on. So I suppose, right. I suppose there are many, there are many different it ways became, in which you can see the cloud. You know, yeah, as, as, as can happen when you're lucky with your metaphors, they can become these sort of all-absorbing concepts where you've invented something to stand for something else because you don't want to go at it directly. And it turns out that it can collect other meanings. And the, the Grey Fog certainly did that. I mean, in a way, it combines the event of 9-11 with the denial of the event in a single uh, shape. And it, that also leads on to the commemoration of the right. event. How how do you commemorate, come to terms with that event? Yes, well, I mean, this is very specific to the life of, of New York City, and not all your listeners may know this, but one of the strangest and most bitterly ironic things about the decade, almost decade now since, since September 11th, uh, 2001, is that the first feeling was this adamant wish to build on that site and make something glorious and, you know, make something better than the World Trade Center, which was always a building people were ambivalent about. And yet it remains this enigmatic, unresolved pit in the ground. I mean, almost 10 years later, it's as though there's some psychic wound that can't be answered. And so we can't solve the logistical problem of building something new in that spot. That's a metaphor so good that if I'd made it up, I almost would have been embarrassed by it. Uh, but it's true that there's still just this giant, you know, essentially open grave there. And in the novel, that is appropriated by a conceptual artist slash charlatan who has made a career out of, of basically digging holes in the ground and trying to impose some sort of meaning on them. Right. Well, you know, this is a part of the book that connects it to something in Fortress of Solitude, the film that, um, that the father is working on, this endless, impossible artwork and I guess I'm drawn in a, in a very, I'm, I'm, I'm both drawn and repulsed by the kind of high modernist gesture of making something unbearable, making something impossible, a book too long and difficult to read or a, a sculpture too vast to contemplate. Or I was thinking, of course, of Richard Serra, who builds urban sculptures that are so gigantic and obnoxious that they destroy the civic life of the neighborhood that they've been inserted into uh, there was a thing called tilted arc that he built in manhattan 
that ruined everyone's lunch hour. There used to be this lovely pavilion that people would go to to eat their sandwiches on their office break, the one little bit of sunlight in their day. And he built this kind of monumental, frighteningly off-kilter iron wall that destroyed this public space. You know, it, on the one hand, in a world where art has been rendered so often redundant or made to seem irrelevant, I'm very, very drawn to making something that's such a conundrum or so aggressive or so enormous that it will draw people's attention. I want to make art that would wake people up. And I, you know, I, I'm always hoping to be doing that. But I also think there's something perverse in making something that is itself like an act of violence or war or, or destruction. And so I kind of exaggerated this idea. You know, I thought about what if an earthworks artist like Robert Smithson, instead of working out in the desert where essentially he can't harm anyone what if there were was somehow an earthworks artist unleashed on new york city mm. making these titanic holes in the ground that you know became opportunities for people to commit suicide and you know uh it just just were fundamentally calamities almost as if he were a terrorist it's an idea that's not completely original to me it's that convergence of terrorism and art is something that delillo has written about again and again so yeah i mean i i don't think the artist in Chronic City is completely a charlatan. I think he's a monster in some ways, but he's he's also onto something. He's in a city that's slumbering. He's trying to announce a wake-up call on his own terms. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I entirely see what you're saying there because I think one of the things the book suggests is that you cannot distinguish between the real and the fake. The real and the fake are yeah. intertwined and implicated in each other and... You can't tease them apart. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, I wouldn't have... It sounds like a very definite conclusion. And I wouldn't have been able to enunciate something like that when I started the book. But as I've been talking about it, having written it, I realize that's where the characters end up, is learning that they've got to find a way to outgrow the the wish to make a, a quarantine between what feels real to them and what feels virtual. That now, that's over. What you do with what you've got is what counts. How you live within this inextricable conflation of unreal and real that is the 21st century is what's going to matter, not making some old-fashioned distinction between the two. Let's come down from that sort of top level. (laughs) Introduce me to, you you mentioned a sort of Seinfeld kind of feel to it. Introduce um, Chase and Stedman and Perkis Tooth. Well, you know, Chase is... uh, a character that I'm very fond of. I mean, it, it may seem in a way that I'm... If you describe him, he sounds like a send-up of a kind of callow celebrity. Or, or he's, al- he's almost such a mediocre celebrity that he's, he's like a... He's a dupe. He's like a, he's like a figure in a reality television show that you, you find kind of pathetic for what they don't understand about the script they're, they're working within. But his sensation of being trapped in... A script that is, you know, his everyday life is uh, an absurd and repetitious farce, but that he doesn't know how to break out of that is very meaningful to me. I think it's a feeling that creeps over me at times, and I think it's, I suspect other people can identify with it. You know, he's, uh, in a way, a sleepwalker or an amnesiac, but he's also, quite specifically, he's a he's an actor who's not sure when he's working and when he isn't. And in that way, I really do think he's like a character in a reality television show. And I, you know, we condescend to, to the people who walk onto those stages and 
enact those strange, you know, Punch and Judy shows for us. But I, I think they may be closer to representative figures for our time than we want to admit. And, uh, you know, and then in a very silly way, I, here I am on book tour and the temptation that's being offered in my own experience of trying to say something useful in my, in my work, trying to express something that I'm feeling or, or, or suspecting, you know, it's not that I have some pronouncement I'm coming down from the mountaintop with. These books are fumbling explorations on my part, but then I do end up uh, walking around a bit like a politician or a mm. mediocre actor kind of you know well ian McEwen has this remark where he says um being on book tour is is like being an employee of your former self and um i i before i'd heard that remark i'd come up with my own thought that it was it was like being asked to play play the role of yourself on on a series of marginal stages but it's not the same thing as as writing it it's a it's a strange kind of uh, performance and so some of Chase's dilemma comes directly out of the, you know, when I say he's a very mediocre celebrity, well, that's, that's what authors are in our culture. They're not real celebrities. They're, they're, they're sort of pocket celebrities. You know, there's about four, four rooms I can walk into on the planet where I'm, I'm recognizable. And the rest of the time, I'm just sort of some sort of uncomfortable name that people half recognize, but feel guilty they haven't read the book or whatever it is. So I'm not, I'm not a useful you know, I don't have a useful amount of fame. I have just enough to be uncomfortable. Well, that's, I also think, a strangely 21st century situation. It's, it's what, in a way, blogging has made possible for every person. There's some room that they might walk into, maybe it's a virtual room, where they kind of play the role of themselves. So everyone gets to taste that now. And then there's Perkis Tooth, and you, you describe Chase as kind of amnesiac. And I suppose Perkis kind of yeah. jolts him a bit out of his amnesia. Well, Perkis, right. Perkis is another exaggeration of things I've known, people I've been and, and people I've loved and cared for and found exasperating and impossible. He's the, the cultural interrogator run amok. He finds meaning everywhere. He's a super interpreter. The way, you know, you might say of someone who has that problem with their tongue that they're a super taster. He super tastes everything, a book, a record, a film, a TV show. Even his relationships, he's so prone to trying to ferret out their deeper, their secret meanings that it drives him and everyone he knows absolutely crazy. You know, he stands for that part of life where you have these inklings that there's more going on than, than you've been told, that there's got to be some deeper reality than the one we're presently experiencing, which is, I think, a sensation that is almost universal. Of course, when it manifests itself in actual pursuit, when people, for instance, become conspiracy theorists, they're usually obnoxiously wrong. Very few conspiracy theories result in satisfying inquiry into anything, but their impulse, the initial impulse, that surely there must be more going on than, than, than meets the eye, that I think is a feeling you know, nearly everyone walks around with. And I had a strong sense that Perkis, in his rent-controlled Upper East Side department, was really an endangered species, not just in New York, but in the world. And there's a sort of very telling moment where you get a, a sense of that, where he goes, he used to, to um, construct, to make broadsides and go out and, and stick them up all over Manhattan. And he goes out again, sort of 20 years on. And 
he can't really find anywhere to put them. It's like it's like the world has kind of changed, and there's no longer. I think I think Chase says at one point he can't get any he can't get any traction on right. the effective world, and that that seems to be the the position Parkas finds himself in in twenty first century Manhattan. Yeah, well, it's a couple of things. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, in some ways, it's a bit of an elegy, quite sentimental and specific on my part for the possibilities of a certain kind of urban bohemian existence that have been priced out. <laughs> In many places, of course, they can go and run and hide in other places. But I also think there's something else apart from matters of, of real estate or you know how we conceive social spaces that's changed, and that is the Perkis tooths of the world. In a way, they're quite degenerate figures, but they also were very princely figures because they were bearers of knowledge that the work they'd done, the, comp- the kind of um, work of compilation and curatorial work they'd done was unique. But now in the internet age, we're all Perkis Tooth. No one is and everyone is. I mean, anyone can go to YouTube and have a million links at, at, at hand and, and nothing, there's no secret culture anymore. It's all uh, been flattened out and turned into this vast uniform sea of access. And so you can't, you can't be a secret master in the same way. The, the, the funny thing about this book is that I, I was thinking about digital culture in many ways, but I also couldn't imagine how to how to write about it directly any more than I could write directly about 9/11. So I had to make these guys terrifically stupid about the internet. You know, they're still using dial-up computers. And if Perkis were looking for a place to put his broadsides now, I mean, the obvious answer, although the book can't supply it, is a blog. That's where any broadside belongs now. The former outdoors has gone indoors now. You know, it's it's this other space. Mm. I wanted to ask you what you felt the novel enabled you to do as a medium, which other media, because you, you know, you're talking about the proliferation of digital media and different forms of interventions, and yet you've chosen to write a novel. What, what is it that, that lets you do? Well, I'm a very traditional artist. I end up always in these conversations, whether it's about veins of fiction that I mine, you know, kind of magic realism or some would say postmodern fiction or conversations about pop culture itself, comic books, film, the internet, extremely contemporary things. I tend to play this role in life of outwardly this kind of super contemporary person, but I'm actually in many ways quite the opposite. I'm I'm a Perkis tooth. I'm out of time. I'm I'm deeply traditional. My commitments are to narrative in its 18th, 19th century form. I I love what only the novel can do in terms of depicting an extensive, creating an extensive alternate world of, of characters and situations and possibilities and playing them out in the narrative form and good old-fashioned storytelling form. I, I really, I, I sort of feel like I always end up talking about Pynchon when I should be talking about Dickens because it's as much in my mind to do, and this book is a very much a kind of tempt to to think about uh, Manhattan in the 21st century the, with the same degree of kind of galactic embrace that Dickens makes of London in his era, taking on every bit of the high and lo- the low and the street culture and the, the you know, the different classes and the, the sense that a city is a kind of universe unto itself. That's where my, my heart is. And so my attraction to con- more contemporary mediums, new forms, is only an attraction. 
uh, but I'm always seeking ways to ground it in my own form, which is I grew up loving novels and stories more than anything and wanting to, to write them adamantly. I, I could never imagine being so satisfied uh, doing doing anything else. Mm. The satire clearly appeals to you. I mean, there's some, some wonderful scenes in the book where you really skewer old money, the, the pretensions and vacuities of power. There's a mayor, the mayor's um, dinner party. There's, a, there's an edition of the New York Times which comes without the war. And, right. you know, there's lots of little little barbs and also wonderful set pieces. So there was clearly a sort of satiric impulse behind yeah, some of it. Yeah, it's in there for sure. I mean, I think as one part of my affection for things, I tend to satirize things that have an allure. I don't usually trouble to send up anything I, I think is simply contemptible. And so the lives of the super rich, as well as seeming obnoxious to me, and, you know, in, in, in a kind of carbon footprint sense, perhaps they're even worse than obnoxious. They're criminal. But they're completely entrancing as well, and they're mysterious. You know, the, what goes on at a party like that isn't so simple that I feel I can dismiss it. So the satirical impulse isn't a kind of I hope it isn't a kind of shooting a fish in a barrel, but trying to climb into the barrel and swim with those fish and see what that feels like. It seems like an exotic, another exotic universe unto itself. The way the world feels if you command that kind of money and access. And, and, and also the strange, blinkered, solipsistic, in, in some cases, quite sweetly naive consciousness that accompanies great money and power because there are so many things that you can't understand from that perspective. Mm. Tell me about the tiger, Jonathan. Oh, well, you know, the book is littered actually with animals that kind of creep into Manhattan and almost all of them except the tiger are quite real. They're taken from incidents that happened in the life of the city in the years I was writing the book. Uh, you know, the coyote that gets into Central Park and the birds that are ne building a nest on this expensive apartment building and um, the the whale that swims up, up the river and then dies. And I think there's something very interesting to me. I've always found it kind of peculiar and, and exemplary, the way Manhattan grinds to a halt, New York City grinds to a halt whenever animal life is detected. You know, someone only has to spot a raccoon and the whole police force has to be mobilized. And, you know, most people living in, in other cities in the United States, let alone in the countryside or in the suburbs, see animal life all the time. But in New York, which is somehow conceived of as the city of the future, it's as though it's a, a bizarre, a morbid intrusion of the natural world into, into this city. And it, it's very compelling and people get very sentimental and very upset and they want to protect the animal, but they, they're terrified of it at the same time. And so I, I wanted to exaggerate this more and more because it seemed to me to say something about, again, what is real and unreal about about New York City because finally it is after all just a bunch of buildings planted on the earth and shoots of green leaves do sprout up through the sidewalks now and again and an animal does wander by that can happen but it, somehow it seems portentous uh, when it happens in New York City and so I wanted to create my own exaggerated version of, of one of those moments. Mm. I had spotted the, the recurrence of animals in the book and late on in the book there's a, a dog called Ava, a three-legged pit bull who comes, who comes into the story and I won't give away more about, about how exactly but it seemed to me that she seemed to be able to have a, a certain kind of authentic relationship with the city that evaded, eluded the human characters in it. Well, yeah, I mean certainly she's a 
She's a kind of allegory of what it is to live inside your body. And in a book that's full of characters who are wound up in various kind of cognitive life, whether very actively and, you know, I mean, Perkis is someone who pursues a heady life. He's interested in ideas and culture and marijuana and headaches. It's as though he doesn't exist from the neck down. And Chase, who, you know, is more sexual and, and, and much less of an intellectual, nevertheless is very caught up in, as, as we learn increasingly, caught up in virtual realities, imaginary things. And even the woman he falls in love with is a ghostwriter. So she's sort of herself, but not herself. So the dog is there to remind these characters and to remind the consciousness of the book itself of what it is to be rooted in in physical life, to eat and, and shit and walk around and smell things and um, not to create some very simple sentimental duality between things of the head being unreal and things of the body being real, but to, to make the characters think, think in those terms, if only to realize that um, the human life is destined to not to be a doggish life. You can't return to the body in such a pure sense. You're going to live in a, in a mixed state instead. At one point, Perkis um, thinks, although I think he ventriloquizes it through a polar bear, he thinks, what does anything in this city have to do with what is real? And I suppose that's a question all these characters are, are, are grasping for an answer for. Yeah, I mean it it's um it's a very old question. It's not it's not it's not actually unique to New York City or to the internet age or to the 21st century. It's it's uh nearly the oldest question beyond uh how can I get some food or you know, how do I want to spend my time? Sort of the first abstract question that humankind asks is is what is real? You know, any religious thought is a is a thought about what is real. But it takes on a very unique quality in the present circumstances, I suppose. And that's what I'm trying to get at is the way that question has itself changed <laughs> as the uh, context f for, for asking it has, has changed. And maybe it has a particular acuity in, Manh in Manhattan, given its, its size and its focus and its, its recent history, too. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've sometimes quipped in, in talking about this book, although I didn't have this thought consciously before I began it, that... The reason this is a book about Manhattan and virtual reality is that Manhattan was the first virtual reality. It was like sort of a 20th century warm-up for what we were all going to go through. Because it's a place that is so fundamentally projected and unreal, it's the test case. It, 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 was, uh, it was there so we could begin to get ready. And do you feel now you've sort of said your piece on Manhattan, are you going to return to Brooklyn or what's next? Well, I, I actually, I've got an, a book in mind that's um, set in... in Sunnyside, Queens, and uh, Greenwich Village uh, at the end of the 1950s and beginning of the 60s. I, I don't know if I'm making some sort of dogged geographical tour <laughs> of the borough. boroughs. I didn't really mean to get into that situation, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I will never have anything useful to say about Staten Island or, or the Bronx, but I, I did spend part of my childhood in Queens because my grandmother lived there, and so this book has suggested itself to me. So I'm I'm anyway not done with New York City.